All right. Well, good evening or morning or midnight or midday, whatever it happens to be for those of you who are listening. A brewer is away. He's pursuing his PhD studies in Birmingham. I'm sure living the high life. And Father Bill is with me again. Heretofore, I'll just refer to him as Bill or Billy or Dr. Dandriano and Father Kenneth Tanner, longtime friend of the pocket podcast, first time caller. And we've been wanting to have you in this conversation for a long time, Ken. So thanks for thanks for joining us. Cool. I'm glad to I'm, I'm glad to be here with you too. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun. So we're gonna start with the Jeremiah text, and I'm gonna let Bill lead off reflecting on on the passage, but I'm gonna read just a bit of it to tee him up. I keep using baseball metaphors. Not sure why I'm doing that. Because the Mets are in first place. That's why. And ah, are, are and you a baseball fan? Because it's God's sport. It will still be played in the kingdom of heaven. So. Oh, nice. So we should have a podcast of, about sports, I guess. Baseball in we particular. Could. Are you baseball, a are you a Detroit sure. fan? Are you a Detroit fan? Well, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I, yeah, long story, but floor. I mean, I grew up in Florida, right? And so the, you know, the Braves, right? That's it for the, almost the entire oh, yeah. South. South. And then, right. you know, I went to high school when the Dodgers, I was in L.A. when the Dodgers and Earl Hershiser and the whole, you know, everybody oh, yeah. won the, the, you know, Fernando and everybody. Um, so, you know, uh, Giants made some runs when we lived in California, but then we got to Chicago and the Cubs, who had didn't did much in years, had a major run right through the you're, park you're ball thing. You're carrying greatness with you. I mean, when you yeah. were in the South, Atlanta was good, yeah. And Tigers, the year before we arrived, it was the worst season I think that any team had ever had in the history of Major League Baseball. And then within a couple of years, you know, Vern Lander and Scherzer and everything else, and uh, our chain smoking manager, uh, and we uh, we just about Tory Hunter. I remember the moment, man. He went over the wall, you know, and 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 that was, I said the 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 curtain has closed on years of chances you guys have had. That was it. And since <laughs> then, it's uh, you know they sold everybody off, and you know yeah. Little Caesars family owns the you know the Tigers. But when we first got here, sorry, did you really want to talk about baseball? When I, we, I did, I did, obviously. When we first got here. You know, the girls thought I was a traitor because I started watching the Tigers and, you know, they were Cubs fans. Yeah. Mm. So, And in Chicago, of course, you could only be a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan. And I was a fan of both franchises. And they were like, okay, we know you're not from Chicago because, yeah. you know, you pull for both teams. That's probably the most controversial statement made on this podcast in its history, <laughs> that you were both a Cubs, I mean, a, yeah, a Cubs and Sox fan. All right, Bill, what about you in baseball? Tell us, what's your story? <laughs> Uh, just grew up a Mets fan because right uh, my dad's been a Mets fan. And, you know, I mean, I could over-sentimentalize this and talk about the the way in which my dad and I had a pretty rocky relationship in my early teen years to mm. early 20s. But for some reason, when it came to baseball and the Mets, we would put it away, watch a game together. It was sort of... Uh, the tonic we needed and so you know sports has always been a way for me and my dad my brother you know to relate to each other and beautiful you know as as they say uh baseball is a christian sport because it's about the long journey back home again <laughs> we're gonna yes. have to start this recording they, over they, they do say that 
<laughs> my well, goal is to say things that make Chris cringe as much as I possibly can, and I haven't you, even you thought promise about not it. to over sentimentalize, and then you hyper 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 sentimentalize. All right, let's talk about Jeremiah. Speaking of sentimentalized, what do you make we'll of run. this? Well, I, I said I was going to read it. Let me let me read just a bit of it. It's Jeremiah thirty-two one to three. A, the first part of verse 3, and then it jumps a few verses to 6 and, and on to 15. And I'm not going to read it all, but it's a story of a real estate deal. And it starts with the word of the Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. So it sets us in this, not cosmic, but certainly geopolitical context. And tells us that it's at that time, the 10th year of Zedekiah, the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, that the army of the king of Babylon is besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is confined in the court in by the guard in the palace. So he's in the, the palace prison. The king of Babylon has besieged Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says... You're going to hear that you need to buy this field that is in Anathoth, which is where Jeremiah is from. And it's it's his family land. And, and he does. He bought the field and weighed out the money, 17 shekels of silver, signs the deed, seals it with witnesses, weighs the money on scales, takes the deed of purchase, including the terms and conditions, and gives the deed to Baruch in the presence of his cousin and the witnesses, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court. And then he charges Baruch with this word, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. All right, Bill, what do we make of that? I thought when I when I read it, <clears throat> I thought what was interesting is there's like uh, it's kind of like a microcosm of Exodus where there's like all these sweeping narratives and then all of a sudden when they're building the tabernacle it slows real it slows way down and there's a lot of detail and yeah. it's just it was it was somewhat comedic to me and also I think a little triggering that they you know jeremiah is in jail and there's a lot of drama for chapters and chapters leading up to why he's in jail and i think that actually matters to this text Oh, absolutely yeah and then there's like all this detail about like you know they're getting attorneys and they're getting witnesses yeah. and like all of a sudden he's in this jail but he's got like a mahogany desk and he's got pens and he's like signing deeds right. and it leads you to believe that this major thing is going to happen. And then this deed ends up in an earthenware vessel. And he says, you know, one day, you know, we're going to buy and sell here again. And I mean, and then, you know, the next chapter is, is him praying for understanding. Right. <laughs> but right. I, I think, I think it really like he's in jail because he prophesied hope as opposed to optimism. Yeah. And he prophesied possibility as opposed to absolutes. And like, even if you look in Jeremiah 26, like he prophesies a, a prophecy of what will happen if the people do not repent. Yeah. 
and they throw him in jail for only the part of the prophecy that has to do with what happens if they don't repent. Mm. They never, they never charge him with the fact that he said, if you repent, this won't happen. They only put him in jail for the negative part of the prophecy and they treat it like that's all he said. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I say all of that to simply say, I think that there's something very holy about the the details of the transaction leading to waiting mm. and how there's a kind of prophecy i think in our day that is immediately accepted and it's a prophecy that brings resolution to things that are i think in some ways you can say you know mortally unresolvable yeah and well, do, you, do you think do you think maybe we could draw on jesus parable of the soils the seed and the soils that there are words that you know never spring to life at all because they're you know they're wasted but then there are words that spring up quickly but they they don't last because there's there was no patience in the reception of them or the giving of them do you think is that fair and then there, the the good words are the words that go deep you know i do and i think that the second soil there the one where you know the the seed goes down a little and it and it starts to produce like He's he's in jail because they they didn't let it the seeds of his prophecy fully germinate like they were just they were just taking that 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 quick moment and saying, you know, you're you're not saying that we're going to get better now. Yeah. And so we're throwing you in prison and, you know, not to jump, but I think the Psalm 91 text about, you know, it, it's the Psalm that the devil uses in Matthew four for Jesus to jump off the temple and his angels will bear you up. It's Psalm 91. I can't even look at Psalm 91 anymore after COVID. Mm. I just can't even look at it anymore. It's been like a lot of Christians used it the same way Satan did. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically. I mean, ironically, but unironically. But so, so much of that temptation in that Psalm was an immediate now resolve. Mm -hmm. And so much of Psalm 91 is about things that are going to happen eternally while we're waiting now and so i just if if i was preaching from jeremiah it would be the ugly message about you know why jesus uses agricultural metaphors constantly to talk about the ways that the kingdom of heaven can be described and it's just it's it's part of the judgment of god on our life part of his judgment that makes us right is the lag the delay the time that it takes And so Jeremiah is in prison because his prophecies were prophecies about time. And yep. now, you know, here's this earthenware vessel after this like very detailed prof, uh, story. And then it's just buried. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I think there's something really pregnant about that image. And, and it's not just the waiting before the word is given. It's the waiting once the transaction has happened. I mean, the the word is sealed away. I mean, it's jarred in the way that my grandmother used to jar fruit, right? I mean, it's it's kept, it's preserved. And yeah, I, I think I think you're putting your finger right on the impatience that our our itching ears demand. Like we, we that that leads to itching ears, right? So that we demand a word that satisfies immediately. I, I'm reading, I'm, I'm teaching a class next week and I'm going to talk a bit about propaganda and preaching 
But I think the contrast here, and I'm looking at Jacques Ellul's book on propaganda. He talks about eight different types of propaganda. But the heart of it is propaganda is a technology for getting quick responses. I mean, those are my words, not his, but that's at the end of the day, propaganda is, is what we come to say so that people will act in the ways we want them to act quickly. It, it's to get things done. And that propaganda in that way is hard to distinguish from false prophecy. And Jeremiah's prophecy is, is marked by that patience, that lag that you talked about. And it's a word that then has to gestate, right? It's, it's a word that, like Jesus himself, takes time to come forth. And even when it does come forth, it takes time to grow up. Yeah, and it, I mean, I think it would be pretty easy to connect that to the idea that we we carry this treasure in jars of clay. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, our, in our body, what we can give to the world is hope. Mm -hmm. And hope is enriching the world's maturity and waiting. Yeah, yeah. And I think for the people who are the most injured by life, nothing can be more discouraging than prophecies of speedy recovery, whether yeah. it's relationally or financially, whatever it is, not, not yeah. just illness, you know, like, like we're all going through right, right now, varying degrees. I think that just whatever healing needs to take place. We, we think that the optimistic prophecy is the one that will lead to encouragement, but it's the one that leads to, I think, debilitating like paralysis in our spiritual life when it's spoken so confidently that things are going to get so much better. And then when they don't, because they weren't supposed to, mm. there's now guilt and condemnation. And, and, and you start putting those people in a type of prison in a, you know, you start putting them in, in you, you disassociate and you're indifferent to them. Like they, they go away from you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, I think there, the connection to earth and where reminds me of Paul in prison, right? That Paul's word is coming out of a, of a hole in Rome and, in the way that Jeremiah's word, right, is coming out of this hold in the palace. But I, I, Father Ken, talk a little bit about how you're hearing, what, what this text is leaving you thinking. Well, it was really, when, when Bill started talking, um, I was remembering uh, this really short story that um, Chuck DeGroat, who's the pastoral theologian mm -hmm. at Western yeah. Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, posted this morning. It's not long. I'm just going to read a little bit. Yeah, of yeah, read it. That's terrific. I saw it. it. It's really good. Yeah, it, it it says the same thing. Bill is from a different angle. Yeah. Um, years ago, a pastor. This is Chuck writing. Years ago, a pastor began spiritual direction and counseling with me, only to quickly end our sessions after I made a suggestion. He'd enjoyed our early morning. Uh, he'd this pastor and director um, had enjoyed an early morning CrossFit section and came in fired up. He said, God is calling me to plant churches around this region. Um, and so Chuck says, I asked him if we could listen, pray and discern over six months and then revisit this. That did not land well. And so Chuck goes on to say, I've seen many, including myself, mistake the voice of God for a neurochemical cocktail. Activated sympathetic nervous systems produce fierce emotions. Activated nervous systems also demand quick actions. 
of course god is in our complicated neurobiology but god isn't our neurochemical high we we're often so out of touch with our bodies that we don't know the difference um, we've justified all kinds of actions, sometimes even harmful action on the voice of, well, an activated fight mode instead of the quiet whisper of God. As it turns out, spiritual discernment also requires bodily and emotional discernment, but many of us just don't even know where to begin on this. Uh, changing this reality is just one piece of much of what needs to be done for renewed hope and healing in the church. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Bill? Well, I mean, I, th I think going back to the idea that we have, like, so he places this uh, this document of hope in an earthenware vessel and buries it. And so leading into the, you know, sort of mystical connection to the fact that we have these treasures and jars of clay. I think that w the best part of us in terms of real authentic evangelizing, like bringing the good news to bear on the world, happens when we're broken open because of our waiting. Yeah. Like when we submit to the glory of waiting, we we join Christ in his waiting. And when we're broken open by that, what comes out of that? Like what comes out of posit positivity or optimism is is hollow. Yeah. Yeah. What comes out of waiting is I think the the maturing of the saints. Mm. You know, yeah. and so I just for me, this was just like a call to really slow down, live in spirit and in truth in the season that we're in and, and like jeremiah is in jail he could get himself out of jail by changing up the prophecy a little bit but he holds to the waiting yeah. and it's continuing to break him open and every time he's broken open more more christology is pouring out of him more, yeah. more of yeah. the stuff that makes jesus real to us later pours out of him and so i just yeah. I, I feel like for me it's just that it's a huge very honestly simple in a lot of ways message to say like look at this amazing document this is great we're gonna now put it in the ground and <laughs> you know that 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 document resides in us it's the good news and right yeah, now this, yeah this is the writing this is yeah. the writing on our hearts i mean it's making me think too about the word of god is not chained right there's a way in which prophets and apostles cannot be silenced even when they're silenced, right? They, they they speak even when they're holed away. And God is acting precisely when we are willing not to act, right? When, when we're capable of restraining. I mean, that's also the story of Jeremiah, right? That he doesn't have to act in order for God's action to be efficacious. He doesn't have to speak for God's word to be heard. And the trusting that, right, is precisely what makes it prophetic. That, that he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to speak it. He doesn't have to do it. I, he doesn't yeah. get to live on the property he just bought. Right. 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 And I think there's something there too about the fact that like, we're always seeing our leaders at when it's at its worst. And Chuck DeGroat talks about this in when narcissism comes to church. He's like, they're always living in the promised land, telling everybody else you wait. Yeah. It'll eventually be yours too. You know? Look and at what I got. Look at what right. I got. And in this case, he bought a piece of land, but my man's still in jail. <laughs> right, right. It legitimizes his prophecy because he's not reaping a benefit that other people can't yeah. reap until it comes to fruition. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a prophetic action that uh, it, it, God's, God's not going to abandon. 
Israel in their exile. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're still going to exile and it's a major tragedy uh, for the nation and uh, for everything else, for the people and uh, lots of lots of pain and deaths. And as you say, you know, um, stolen land and, you know, um, broken uh, dreams and everything else. Uh, but he, you know, this action says, well, it's not going to last forever. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That it will land will be bought and sold. Vineyards will be bought and sold in this land again. Right. Yeah. Not not in the short not in the short run, but but again. And and there's something prophetic too, obviously in not during the lifetime of Moses. Right. That, right. Including Jeremiah. Right. That he's right. he's not going to live to see this. He's not going to get to live on this land that he bought, yeah. even when he's out. Right. From from prison. But he shouldn't. He's a prophet. He doesn't. He's not going to live in blessing while his people toil under the curse. That's, you know, that's Bonhoeffer going back to Germany when he yes. has a, he has the chance to stay here in the States and stay safe, right? He, he belongs yeah. with his people. And I think, and th this, this stuff cuts against the grain. I, I want to read, I want to go to the first Timothy text briefly, and then we can go to the gospel. But I, I wanted to read this from Daniel Berrigan's Jeremiah commentary, which I've been reading and sharing off and on here, talking specifically about this story of the purchase of the field. It's hardly earth-shaking, he says. Why indeed bother to record the incident at all? Its only interest being that it occurs within earshot of the assault on the city. A field changes hands, we are told. If the scribe would make hay of the event, and he puts an exclamation point, right? The, the joke, making hay of this, it might be remarked that the prophet seems notably unconcerned as to the outcome of the battle for Jerusalem. Like the prophet's worried about this transaction, not the conflict at the gates. Yet on reflection, the episode teems with implications as to the character of Jeremiah and the nature of prophecy itself. In the midst of the chaos of war, his city threatened with destruction, Jeremiah concludes a minor exchange of real estate. Talk about chutzpah, right? Like, like this is boldness, right? This is daring. And be it noted that the field in question lies in Anathoth, an occupied portion of his country. Thus, the mere purchase surpasses itself. The act dramatizes the truth of verbal prophecy, bespeaks the ending of war, and the resumed rhythms of peace, as spelled out by Jeremiah at the end of the transaction. The Lord, the God of Israel, has said, Houses, fields, and vineyards will be again bought in this land. The action is exemplary and recorded as such. Nero, Jeremiah has enacted a peaceable drama. Therefore, peace is possible. He's enacted a peaceable drama. Therefore, peace is possible. Hmm. More is dramatized here, present, actual. Others might be moved to do the like. Peace might once more become the native ground of mind and heart, dear and actual as a bought field. And this even during a siege of terror, when all but a few are trading mortal blows, sweating through destruction and violent death, the actuality present consuming in the midst of war, a work of peace. In the midst of war, a work of peace. That's the Eucharist. Yeah. Right. That's what we're doing every Sunday, right? We're sealing up a word in a jar. And when, and when you mm. listen to the way 
once you listen to it the way Berrigan puts it, I mean, this is a nothing short of a Christ-like act of faith. I mean, there's <laughs> there is nothing. It's a resurrection like, moment. It's yeah, again, it's yeah, Eucharist. I mean, yeah. it's a, it is a it's a it's an, a massive amount of faith. Incredible, yeah. It, but it's it is the simplicity of it is this is the simplicity of the bread and the wine that we consume in that feast. And when when we take that word into our bodies, the word that is the bud, blood, the bud, blood and body, we are taking in that word of in this field of our lives, of our families, of our bodies, our spirits. Like there will be peace again. There is already peace because look at what we just dramatized. And gosh, I wish we could catch a vision of that, right? Really catch, be caught by a vision of that. I mean, it's it's what you're you're all gonna say in Hebrews for the next you know 275 weeks. <laughs> um, is that like he he doesn't tell them to take this jar and put it on a shelf or in a temple? Mm -hmm. He just put it in the ground. I just think it it speaks to the fact that no prophecy is worth coming true if it doesn't bless those who have left us that didn't get to experience it before they passed. Mm. Which yeah. is, you know, that 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 crescendo of Hebrews where it's like these all died having not received. Yeah. Blessing of Christ being being the jar coming up out of the ground is such a powerful blessing that it doesn't just bless the people in the moment, but it reaches backwards. And I think like, you know, not to get into the issues of the day, but if we could find those kinds of blessings that don't just benefit those here, mm -hmm. but can mm -hmm. go down into the disappointment of those who never got to experience it. Like those are the prophecies we want to come true. Absolutely. No other prophecies are worthy of coming true. Right. I, I I'm thinking about a couple of things and then let's come to the Timothy text. One, this is one of, one of the aspects of the book of Ruth that I love so much is that it's set during the time of the judges. And yet there is this incredible peacemaking generosity and hospitality at the heart of that story. Everyone in that story is, is including Orpa, including the, the kinsman who does not marry Ruth. Like all of them are open. Right? There's varying degrees of openness, but they're all open. They're all peaceable people in the midst of the most chaotic, destructive time in Israel's history. And I, I have to remind myself, I have to be reminded that even when the war is at the gates, this kind of peacemaking, peacekeeping is possible, right? Like the, the, these are dramatic acts of, of peace are possible in the midst of war. And it, it also reminds me, Bill, your last comment. I don't know if you guys are watching the Rings of Power show, but the, the Hobbits in that show have a kind of liturgy that they they say for their dead and those left behind when they're about to set out on pilgrimage again and it the i will, i don't remember all of it but the the refrain at the end so they name off those who've been left behind those who've died and the cause of their death and then the refrain the congregation gives is we wait for you we wait for you That's and good. i we have to have that 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 liturgical sense that it's it's not right for us to enter the promise without those who died without seeing it 
right now of course for christians it's also there's also a way in which they're the ones waiting for us right like they're the ones who are alive this is bonifer right that the dead that's where that's what i was saying hey they got this liturgy wrong as i was watching the show they're waiting Uh, for us yeah yeah Yeah, and i think the i think it runs both ways but ultimately it's integrated like you always say yeah it it runs both ways but you know there is it's it's a lovely way liturgy right harfoots i mean come on (laughs) yes We, we quoted the New Zealand prayer book last time, which is also just the BCP, but... That, that prayer is from the, yeah, from the, the, the comic book. Comic the New Zealanders yeah, have a, it too. The, the Zealand, the NZ take on it. But the... More contemporary. The, we need the Harfoot prayer book. And then we can debate the finer points of it. All right, let's come to the First Timothy text, which of course is an infamous one, because this is the love of money is the root of all evil or all kinds of evil. But I, I think this is, especially when it's set alongside the light of the Jeremiah text, it's such a lovely passage. And and I'll I'll ask you to read it, Bill, if you've got it there in front of you. Just just read the the whole of it, if you would. First Timothy six six to nineteen. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, we we have to talk about that line when I'm done reading it. Yeah. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the end of the, at the, at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Gosh, I love that passage. I'll let you go go first this time. You, You said me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and you guys are probably reading it through um as for those who are in the present age are rich right you you've got all that right yeah in there yeah, yeah, well. yeah yeah so i mean it, it there's several things that pop out right i mean there's the that that money is a root not the root right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but uh you know it, it, this is one of the most, I mean, Chesterton talks about, um, you know, doctrines or teachings that are just self-evident. <laughs> right. And I mean, if there isn't something that is absolutely self-evident and does not call for wisdom, doesn't call for discernment, doesn't call for investigation, it's that people with um, wealth end up um, for various reasons and various circumstances end up just really having shipwrecks, you know, mm-hmm. in their life. 
Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the charge really, and this is really interesting, is this, he's talking to me as the man of God. He's talking to, you know, the person who has called us apart from the community. You know, mm -hmm. you definitely, you know, you, you yeah. are supposed to make sure that you stay away from all of that, right? Yep. Which, yep. I mean, obviously, we can also see where it creates problems for clergy, but that we're even, you know, I mean, obviously, this is the command, right? So, you know, that, that you even allow yourself to get into a, a, a zone like that mm -hmm. um, is, a, is a kind of disobedience, right? I mean, you know, you have to be, you know, very careful as, as someone who is charged to teaching and defending the faith and, um, and baptizing and celebrating the Eucharist. That, you know, you don't end up in a you know situation like this. You know, divesting yourself and so forth and so on, which many of the ancient, you know, first Christians did, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then of course um, it ends up saying, look, you know, um, there are people who are going to be rich. There always are. Jesus hung out with people, you know, who are poor, but he also hung out with people that are rich. Yep. He, you know, he he wasn't making distinctions. We can argue that he had, you know, a, he, he's standing with one group over the other and his, you know, his solidarity is with one group, or, but he's not making these distinctions. Nope. And, uh, but he is saying, look, if, you know, if you have wealth, these are the dispositions that someone who is following me as a wealthy person will display. Um, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, one of the things, gosh, I mean, it's hard to even know where to start with this, but I know the. I, I think so much of the reading that I've heard in my life about this, this passage is driven not by Jesus ethic, but by a middle-class blue collar distaste for the elite and distaste for the wealthy, a, a kind of resentment about the fat yeah, cats no right? who, who live, you know, high on the hog. Right. And I, I think this passage is far from saying that money and wealth and Craig Keene, the Nazarene theologian makes this interesting distinction between money and wealth. And he says, money is the problem, not wealth. It's the love of money, not the love of wealth. Yeah. I hear that. And it's, it's the point, at least as I understand him is he's saying wealth is is one thing, but the desire to be able to use something to control what really cannot be controlled, that money as this technology for controlling the uncontrollable, that's where the problem is. And it doesn't really matter how much of it you have. In fact, not having very much of it may be precisely what's fueling the love for it. So it's really got nothing to do here with tax brackets yeah. or yeah. with upper class, middle class, lower class social dynamics. It has to do with do you or do you not, are you or are you not at peace with the fact that most of what matters in your life is outside of your control and that you don't get to have a say in almost everything that happens to you, yeah. right? You can, you can speak in the midst of what happens to you, but you don't get to determine it or control it. And I think, oddly enough, many of us were, were honed to, to, ache for control like we we're we've been habituated to thinking that we can have control if we just had a little bit more money if we had just a little bit better political yeah. positioning and if we if we get free of that paradigm then this text 
is is telling us how it's possible to live with God in ways that are that bring joy, right? That that yeah. cast joy like the sun casts light. Bill, looks like you were and, yeah. And I, just real briefly, I have absolutely met and still know people who are dead to their wealth. I mean, they truly are dead to it. Um, and then I, you know, I've also known people um, who don't have, who are absolutely possessed by, you know, the the, you know, desire to you know, gain and control and so forth and so on. And people who in the middle, right, if you will, that are absolutely, you know, but I think Bill especially wanted to talk about great gain and godliness combined with contentment. Yeah, hit, hit us, Bill. Just when you were talking about, uh, you know, the, the craving to be rich is a way of talking about the craving to control. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember, I, it's, it's behind me somewhere. I It might have been Stanley Harawas said that, there's a lot of possibilities about what the great confession was that Jesus made to Pilate. Ah, uh, yeah. And he he thinks it's the time that Jesus didn't ever answer him. Uh. That when Pilate questioned him and Jesus kept his mouth shut and didn't speak up, yeah. that letting go, the way that he had Pilate on the fence and he could have appealed to a powerful person to use that power to release him and he doesn't say anything, that is like the one of the moments where he relinquished, where he let go, where he he didn't satisfy the craving for control. You know, and so I just I just thought I've always I've always been spooked by that text and and really enjoy that the idea that is it possible in a world where we only ever want to hear what is the right thing to say that one of the best confessions of Christ is when he didn't say anything to the charges. Yeah. And that's that's a bonifer again, right? That in in life together in the sectional ministry. Often the best thing we can do for our neighbor is not speak, right? like hold our tongue. It's what we do not say that is actually life giving, and, and yeah, that's a good confession. Yeah, and 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 I, you know, just to confirm, you know, Bill, I, you know, that's a, when I read that tonight uh, before we came on the good confession. What what was what moment was the good confession? And, and that was that was what was quickened, you know, to use the Pentecostal. To, in, to my mind was, you know, his silence. Mm. That was, you know, yeah. That, and, that and of was course, that, that silence is, is the patience we were talking about. Yeah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah living, Jeremiah embodying, you know, silence is that, that act of sealing up the word in the jar. And also right at the, at the heart of heart, heart of the Eucharist. That line in particular, though, Bill, you said you wanted to say something about God yeah, contentment. It's probably going to, like, th- this This little tangent, if, if, if you're listening to this, this would be a good time to go get, like, iced tea or something. Like, this is a little <laughs> a little tangent for a second. But I just thought it was interesting to me. This this is the third time it's happened to me, Chris. You're, you're the reason why the first two happened. So uh, it was Peter speaking in the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and then later being confronted uh, with his racism. Yeah. And so when he said all flesh in Acts 2, he was right in what he said, but he didn't actually mean it. Yeah, the right way. Right, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then the second one is 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about like, if you speak in tongues or give your body to be burned or have prophetic powers and have not love. It's like, wait, like, so we can do those things and not have love. That's terrifying. Yeah. 
it's absolutely terrifying that we could speak in tongues and have it not be loving but then when you once you get that and you look back you're like oh yeah that's happened a lot (laughs) (laughs) yes with this one it was like godliness with contentment just the phrase got me and it's like how many times have we been godly Mm. really with a desire to not have to be content yeah a discontent god right and so i'm thinking of like easy example easy example adam and eve like made in the image of god walking with him in the cool of the day kind of stuff unbelievable like and 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 not content and the the temptation latches itself to that lack of contentment you can be if you do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and so like there's godliness but there's no contentment yeah and i just thought of how quickly that godliness can be completely destroyed in us because we want to use becoming like God to satisfy our malcontent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. God becomes a resource for bringing to us or getting for us the stuff we think we want, right? Yeah. We're, we're making raids on God to enrich ourselves. I mean, so much of what passes under the name of revival or revivalism is that right. It's an attempt to, to storm heaven and steal the riches of God for, for our, for our pleasure. And yeah, yeah, I think that's a good word. This might be a good place, Chris, to bring in that passage from origin about uh, explaining that he will give us all things with him. Right. So as, as like, you know, if you had your mind, if you were contemplating that this quest for control and everything else, if you knew where you were really going, which is what the, you know, the, you know, the whole prophetic act of Jeremiah and burying it, you know, that there's a resurrection coming in which, and by the way, Bill, you've got your sermon right there with Christ is the deed that's buried and then you know, rises. But yeah, what do you think about that? Is this a good? Yeah, because at the end of this passage, let, let's do that. If, you, if you've got it there in front of you, that, that passage I shared earlier from Origin, I'll have you read it. But let's, okay. at the end of the, Timothy. at the end of the, Timothy passage. Hold on just a second. I lost my. Oh, there it is. He's he says, as for those who are in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. life. And I, I want to, just before you read, I want to just draw attention to the connection between this opening line about being content with what we have, and then this closing line about the God who provides us with everything for our enjoyment, right? So there's, be content with, you didn't bring anything into the world, and you're not taking anything out of it, but God provides us with everything, and he provides us with everything for our enjoyment, right? So just keep those lines in mind. And then uh, Father Kenneth, read this, which is uh, from Origen's commentary on Romans. This phrase, and he quotes Paul, he will give us all things with him, can be understood in two ways. For it can apparently mean if we have Christ in us, and as much as he is word and wisdom and truth 
and righteousness and peace and all the other things written of him, that with this fullness of virtue, everything else is given to us. Mm. We are consequently not just one among all the creatures, nor do we have just this small piece of earth which we seem to occupy, but have together with Christ everything that God has created, visible and invisible, hidden and open, temporal and eternal. But this text which says he will give us all things with him can also be understood another way. Namely, that to him as heir will indeed be given the whole created world to enjoy, but also to us as co-heirs together with him. Yeah. Gosh. Read Origin, everyone. Read everything about Origin. Gosh, what a word. So I, I think he, the same thing he says there about the Romans 8 passage, God will with us, with him, give us all things, can be said here, right? We bring nothing into the world. And yet precisely as the creatures who bring nothing and take nothing, take nothing out of it, we are given everything by God. Uh, years ago, I preached a sermon about the woman with the two mites. And she, Jesus says she is given more than them all. And what struck me was it's precisely the fact that she had nothing that positioned her to, to work in God's economy. Right? And there is a way of having, of recognizing that I, whatever I do have, whatever's in my hand, whatever money is there, whatever talents are there, et cetera, whatever's in my hand, I didn't bring it into this world and I'm not taking it out of the world. It was given. What do you have that you did not receive? And once I recognize its givenness, then I share. Then I all of a sudden I take on the, the character, the liberality of this prodigal God who, who cannot stop giving and in giving himself gives us all things. And Origen's point is, first of all, what do you want? Do you want Jesus? Do you love him? I mean, one of the things that to me makes Origen such a trustworthy teacher is that he's clearly besotted for Jesus. Like he is head over heels in love with Jesus and is gobsmacked by the beauty of this God and the beauty of the gospel and, and the wonder of scripture. And precisely because of that, he doesn't want anything apart from Jesus. He doesn't want to be content without godliness. He can't be content without the content of his life being the life of God. But he also doesn't simply want more and more and more of God to consume on his own lusts. And that, that kind of satisfied desire that remains desirous, even in its satisfaction, like that, to shift the metaphor, it's, a, it's, it's what the fathers call a sober intoxication, right? Like where you're, you're caught up and inflamed with love for God. And precisely because of that, you're at peace. And you're, you're moving into the depths of God, but precisely because of that, you're, you're settled, right? You're, you're not moved. And that, the wonder of all that, the paradox of all that, the ways in which all of that is integrated in the lives of the saints, the prophets, the martyrs, the apostles, I think 
is is a summons to us that that kind of life is possible again even when war is at the gates even when it's the time in which the judges rule that kind of life is possible and that it's a life of enjoyment and that that's the line that you hear from origin god has given everything to christ to enjoy and us to enjoy with him and then in this passage that god has given us all things for our enjoyment right like, like there's a god god is anything but a stick in the mud i remember max lucato saying this about john 2 that jesus enemies jesus going to the wedding of cana that jesus enemies said a lot of things about him but what nobody says about jesus is that he was unenjoyable or stuck up or stuffy nobody thinks of jesus as too good to be present he's not he's not a holier than thou presence and i, I he it's it's easy to see how Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk uh, because he enjoyed life, you know, and again, I could go on forever about what that tells us about this Jesus, right? I mean, this is a Jesus who has a taste for what is good in this life. He made it for us. And, and yet precisely because he receives it as something given, not something to take, not something self-made. It, it is, it's shared. Well, that's yeah, the... and it, it calls for patience and, and faith because, um, you know, he does deliver from the pestilence. He does deliver from night terrors. He does deliver from the arrows. He does release the prisoner and so forth. But most of the time that happens, as, I mean, eschatologically, yeah, right? Right. you know, beyond um, the pestilence killing us, the arrow killing us, the, the, the prison, you know, sentence and all these other things. That's right. Bill, what were you going to say? There's, um, I think, and I, I always say dramatic things. I think the mo, I think the number one verse in the Bible to describe <laughs> not being content is in Numbers when they say, we have no food, we hate this worthless food. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Like I've, heard my, I've heard my five-year-old say that all the time. We have nothing. I don't like what mom made, you know? Yeah. I saw this great, great meme today, Bill, where this is the it's the oldest, just takes what the mother gives. The middle one examines it and kind of like, you know, okay, well, it's not what I was hoping for, but okay. And then the youngest just throws, and the youngest has the most sumptuously decorated plate with all the good food and stuff. And this, you know, slams it aside and says, this isn't what I want. Exactly. And <laughs> and we're all the youngest child. Yeah. Yes, we all are. And it's because of what you just said, Chris. It's that we yeah. we treat, they, they were treating the manna like it was theirs. Yeah. It, what, they weren't receiving it as something offered. And, it, yeah. and it's, what, it's what Jesus said in last week's quote unquote confusing parable of the dishonest manager. If you're faithful in that which is not yours. Yes, right. All yeah. money is not ours. Absolutely. Yeah, nothing is ours, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So a couple Which details. might be here. a good place to transition the gospel. It, it is, but I, I love this passage too much, so we're going to stick here just a little longer. It's such a rich passage, unintended. The This <laughs> this line, and I'm going to quote Origen again, The right after the talk about the good confession, he says, I charge you to keep the commandment, the commandment, without spot or blame, until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to speculate for a moment. I, I hear the good command or the commandment here as love your neighbor. 
Paul sums it up twice that way. And all the prophets are summed up in this commandment, love your neighbor, because it's as loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul that we actually love our neighbor. It's as keeping the Sermon on the Mount and keeping the Ten Commandments that the sermon is explicating that we are able to keep the commandment of loving our neighbor. And he'll bring this manifestation about at the right time. And I love that. He'll bring this about at the right time. Again, patience, the waiting that we've talked about all night. He is blessed. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that line right there, and I can't remember where it is, although I think it's also in the Romans commentary, but don't quote me on that. Origen says, this, this is just who Jesus is. He is the king of kings, not the king of subjects, and the lord of lords, not the lord of slaves. And what Origen sees, rightly, is that God means to make us mutually his, means to make us equals, co-heirs with Christ, as Origen said in the other passage that you quoted for us, Ken, that God means to bring us into his own life. And that, just a few lines before, he talks about we are in the presence of God who gives life to all things, but not only gives life to all things, but draws us into that unapproachable light, draws us into that immortality that is his alone, so that what is his by nature becomes ours by gift. And once we get that, then we can understand why we don't need to be haughty or to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, right? We can do good and share because we recognize that everything we have has been given for our enjoyment. And in recognizing that, it spills over to the good to the good of our neighbor. And that's how we find the life that really is life. Such a stunning line, the life that really is life. So enough about that. Let's come to the gospel now. And it's, it's one, I, I, we don't need to read it because I think it's one everyone knows. This is the rich man lifts up his eyes in hell or in Hades and in torment sees Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So let's, let's start here. Um, I'll come back to you, Ken, if you want to start with us. What do you make of it? Especially in light of what we've been discussing from Jeremiah and Timothy. The first thing that stands out to me about the story, and it is a story, you know, Right. Uh, the first th first thing they know about it is this is a parable. Yes. It's not a description of you know of metaphysical realities and so forth and so on. Yeah. But but it, it the first thing that strikes me is that um, the the rich man hasn't died. Right. He is he has the same mentality that he had when he was on, on Earth in control, the mm. one who was being served, etc. Is now you who used to beg at my door go get me some water and bring it to me man absolutely yeah he, right. he's dead but he hasn't died he has not died he died but he's not dead right. and he doesn't realize that the whole point of the story is the system is over the system that kept you yep. where you are and that kept lazarus where he is is dead right yep. and of course you know i, I mean you know uh, robert farrar capon is you know i'm coming through here I mean, he's really, really nailed nails this uh, in his um, his book, Kingdom uh, Grace Judgment, 
uh, about the parables really nails this. You know, I don't know if he says it this specifically, but you know, this guy's still acting like he's in in this place of torment and hades and so forth and suffering, as though he, you know, he's still the head honcho. Yeah. Yeah, at least at least he still sees Lazarus the same way. I mean, even if you yeah. even if you give him that, he calls Abraham father. Yeah, he's so perhaps you know he sees himself as at least subject to Abraham. Yeah, he still can't see Lazarus differently. Send Lazarus to dip nope. the tip of his finger. And so I, I want to come back to that. Any anything else stand out to you here? Uh, well. Um, you know, I mean, this is the obvious, right? I mean, um, you know, who's, who, who's the story about, you know, the story is about the one who, even if he comes back from the dead, you know, the system, nobody's going to listen, you know, he appears to some of the disciples and so forth that the history goes on and the system goes on. Right, but and, and nobody, nobody starts practicing resurrection. Nobody start. Nobody, well, not nobody, right? I mean, obviously there are martyrs, and then there are people who have been faithful to the gospel, and so forth and so on. But the world in general has gone on as if the order of death is what's real, absolutely, and and resurrection is you know this fairy tale. And uh, whereas the story tells us, no, what's real is the resurrection, and. Um, you know, Abraham and Lazarus are very much alive, and um, uh, and and that's the truth of of reality, not this facade that we see built up by the system, where everybody's different, and some people have, and some people don't have, and you know, and so forth and so yeah. on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and when you talk about the system, I think it's important to point out it's not just evil versions, so to speak, you know, bad, bad systems. Yeah. It's, it's all politics and economics. It's the whole nine years. Everything that we've made religiously, politically, economically, culturally, everything we've made that functions on the presumption that death is real. Yeah. Right. That Mm -hmm. death is a final word. Yeah. And obviously there are all kinds of versions of systems that deal with that re- with that presumed reality in one way or another but in in insofar as they deny the reality of resurrection they still haven't dealt with the the fear of death and i think if we this relates to both of the passages we discussed in this way one the propaganda elul says is, is about effectiveness. Propaganda has to work. It has to get people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And the prophetic does not have to be effective. Like efficiency is just not God's way. He's not a terribly efficient farmer. <laughs> and he's not he's not good at working the system. I that's mean, that's what man. terrible. <laughs> efficiency is not God's way. That's a... <laughs> right. Like that's like God is is really bad at business, right? And so I think that that's the, the first point, right? And we have to kind of recognize God's not trying to turn a profit here. God's not trying to win. God's not trying to come out on top. And because of that, he's not working the system. He's not gaming anything. And 
the, the other point is that if you connect the love of money in Timothy back to Hebrews 13 via Hebrews 2, you see that we can only keep ourselves from the love of money if we've been delivered by the fear of death and from the devil who's used the fear of death against us. So I think at the heart of all this is this, we have to be confident that death is, has become a, what, you know, what, what Maximus says, God has converted the use of death so that it is a door. It is a door into, into life, in, into God. And the tragedy here, and I, I love your observation, Ken, that this man has not died. And he cannot die because he's afraid that death is the end and he doesn't want to be at the end. Whereas, ironically, he needs to die so he can learn that death is not the end. Like it's only if he does die that he can recognize death is a stage on the way to victory. And the that I mean that's Bonhoeffer again. And, and there is a great chasm. He's Abraham is right. There is a great chasm fixed yeah. between yeah. the 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 way of death and the system yeah. systems around death and resurrection life. And 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 uh, and you know Mars Dickens you know of course with the Christmas Carol you know brings us so dramatically to life as well. This kind of story where in the end um you know the, the reality is is scrooge is dead yeah i mean you know marley's dead it starts out marley's dead but scrooge is dead yeah yeah right and it's through these various revelations that he begins to see he he really is already in the grave i mean that's the last thing that he sees right you know but this is not i mean as he's walking around because he's not he's living as oh death um, you know, is the real, and that's it. There is nothing else. Um, he's not living in, yeah. in the kingdom. He's not living resurrection. He's not practicing resurrection. And um, and and so that's what's going on with this fellow. I mean, you could even say it's just a. Re it's it, like this story is like nothing's changed really. You know, metaphysically or whatever. But the veil's been lifted, and you know. The and he, the guy can see what he's he's actually tormented alive by his wealth and by his mm. um, subjugation to the system. Absolutely, yeah. yeah he, he's 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 entrapped right yeah. by his own desires that are inflamed. One one note, and then Bill, I want you to weigh in here. I I'm right now. I'm hearing that line: "You brought nothing into the world, and you will take nothing out of it." As not as a threat or a rebuke, but as a promise that when, when you leave, when you die, nothing is lost. Like nothing that no good you've done, no good you are, is taken out of the world when you die. Because that world is God's. And that world remains open. 100%. The, the, the saints... We do not lose the saints when they die. Right. We, we don't lose their intercession. We don't lose their presence. We don't lose their words. We don't lose their wisdom. And those who love us aren't going to lose us when we die. If we die, if we really die, the tragedy would be if, if our life is over and we haven't died yet. And, and we have to go through that process 
on the other side of the veil, so to speak, which I think puts pressure back on it. And this, you know, takes us afield a little bit. But I think when my, my grandparents, whom I was very close with, I think about this often. Not only did they die well in the sense that when it came time came time to die, to they they died with grace. My grandmother in particular had been afraid, Nan, she'd been afraid of death all of her life. And right at the end, she had dementia. She had a moment of clarity. She said to me, I've been afraid to die all of my life, but now that it's here, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. But what what strikes me about it and brings me so much peace is that even though I miss them there's nothing missing from my relationship with them. Their death was clean. It was a clean break in a sense, right? And there's no, there's nothing left over, unfinished business. But I think when people die with unfinished business, the pressure is on the we, those we call the living to try to work that out. And what's happening here, right, is that the rich man is trying to work out and collaborate with his living brothers to bring about that change right and the i mean i could go on forever about this but the ways in which this is a reason to die well this is a reason to die to our wealth now because if we don't we're going to bind up those who are left behind so to speak with our unfinished business bill uh, I'm glad uh, Father Kenneth brought up uh, A Christmas Carol. A, one of my favorite movies of all time and favorite books to read every year. Um, I, I watched that movie every single Christmas Eve after our Christmas Eve service at church. It's a tradition of mine with a glass of something. We'll call it milk. What's your but favorite production? I like the Alistair Sims version. Yeah. Um, And what I've come to realize with that movie, I've probably watched it, you know, 15, 20 times is it's the story of Scrooge becoming tiny Tim. Mm. It's the story of Scrooge opening, starting off the movie dead and then engaging and, and being exercised in a way that he ends in the same youthful spirit that tiny Tim embodied the whole movie. Mm. And in that regard, I'm going to take a, I'm going to tilt this parable a little bit on Sunday. I'm probably going to get fired. This is it. So Salem, we had a good run, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the story. Like this is the story of the rich man becoming Lazarus. Mm. This is the story of how Jesus deals with yeah. the demon of richness in us and exercises it out, leaving the person whole but the spirit of the rich man gone. And it, it, it to me, like, I, I won't, I won't go through it, but it, it hinges in the moment when the rich man says, have Lazarus come give me a drink. And like you said, father Ken is like, he learned, he's learned nothing. Yeah. But after some interaction, he pivots and, and I'm going to, I'm going to look at this as a sign of hope. He pivots for the first time in the parable to saying, you know, forget about me send send him back to help my family and something is being re or in the fire of god's wrathful love mm -hmm. something is being reoriented in him and i the clue to me and this is where we'll probably like i'll, I'll need a job from one of you guys but this is where it comes down to is jesus jesus says that abraham said 
nobody can bridge this gap. And Abraham said, if, if somebody came back from the dead, no one would listen. Begging the question, if Moses and the prophets can't do it, and if Abraham can't figure out a way to do it, after all, he tried to haggle for Sodom and Gomorrah and couldn't save the city, right? Mm. Who's the one who can bridge the gap for the rich man? Who's the one, if he came back from the dead, even the rich men would have a chance to listen to? And to me, like after like last week of the dishonest manager, the parable before that's the prodigal son, the ones before that you have the lost coin. It's like, here's the chance for people to say like, who then can be saved? This is how the rich man in us can be exercised by going into the fire of God's purifying love and being reoriented and, and realizing Jesus is the priest that can bridge the gap between who I'm supposed to be and the rich man I've become. So I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to take it that way. Absolutely. And he can descend to hell as the creed says and harrow yeah. it. Absolutely. I mean, we're all here because somebody can raise from the dead and get my attention. So, and, know. and, and, you know, Marley's chains drop too. Right. So, yeah. And, and Scrooge praised that form really quickly, like in his tirade of joy that he has at the end of that movie, he quickly like out the window, he looks back to where he saw the spirits and yells some kind of like hopeful comment about, you know, hoping that Marley has found peace too. And I think like, that's the, that's the moment that the spirit's been lifted. Mm -hmm. That's all. That's when we see Jacob Marley again is when Scrooge is talking about him in a new way at the end yeah. of the movie. Matt Noya. Yeah. I think to, to your point, Bill, I, that that casts a different inflection on they will not believe if someone rises from the dead because what they need is someone who will go to the undying in hell going to steal that promptly let's not put that part on the podcast <laughs> why couldn't you mean, texted me that wait this whole thing is for you know guys you know come and get some inspiration and bring it in their pulpit hopefully from their own so Did you see the rich man in me just now? I'm like, no, this content has to be mine. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I You gotta die ago, to it, Bill. Yeah, you gotta die ago. to it. Yeah, man, this has probably been 15 years ago, something like that. I preached on this passage and I, I talked about Gregory of Nyssa's read of it. And it, when he talks about learning from his sister that this this rich man is being pulled through the harrowing love of god purged in in this moment the change that you're talking about bill and when it was over this man till good friend of mine came up to me and he said what if the point of this passage is to make it so that each one of us wants to be the one who takes the the water the cup of cold water to the man in hell as if he were the prophet you remember that line in jesus right that the those who give a cup of water to the prophet will not be without honor and mm. man like that yes jesus is the only one who can cross that bridge but i'm not awake yet until i want to be that one until the one who i'm who's able to see lazarus in the rich man to see the prophet in the condemned and to recognize that I want to give the cup of cold water to him in order for the prophet to be awakened in him. Like any, any moralist 
and, and anyone who's desiring to angling for promotion can give a cup of cold water to someone already known to be a prophet. But it, it takes the heart of a child to give a cup of cold water to whoever's thirsty and, and in awakening the prophet in that way. And it's and Jesus it's, hanging on the cross saying, I thirst, where it's like, if Jesus becomes that rich man, and if we can't see the Lazarus in him, then we're going to miss Jesus too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Bill, that, you can also go ahead, Chris. No, no, no. You, you go, you go. I just, I don't want you to lose that, but the, the I was just saying, you know, he who is thirsty, come unto me. Yeah. Right. I mean, Bill, you can just go right through the, through, I right, think, right out I of think, the stadium with that. And Chris, Chris helped me with this. I think, the 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 line i want to close with on sunday when we come to the table because this story is about two men at a table but they're very far apart yeah you know one is eating sumptuously and the other one's eating scraps and i i want to say at the end regarding the type of integration perfect integration and identification that jesus brings is that when jesus invites his disciples to the table you don't know if it's a rich man inviting poor men to a table or if it's a poor man inviting rich men to a table because he's so perfectly identified with everybody in this story. He's yeah. as much Abraham as he is the gap, as he is the fire, as he is the rich man, as he is Lazarus. And so the, the Lord's table, we don't know if it's the table of a rich man or a poor man inviting rich men or poor men. We just know that we're there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that I think I talked with you, Bill, about this, and we need to we need to wrap it up here. But Lazarus is at his gate, right? That the rich man at his gate, a poor man, Lazarus, and Jesus is amongst everything else the gate, not through which Lazarus gets in to be in the place of Lazarus, but through which Lazarus, I mean, uh, the rich man gets out of the prison of his wealth to what's his destiny, his brother, Lazarus. And like Jesus is the gate, not as our access to the life we think we want, but as our, as the opening to our brother who, who's in need. And, and the moment we recognize that we're, we're free, right? The moment Ebenezer <laughs> Scrooge recognizes that he's free. You do not need to wait to until death to start living that's right in this mentality absolutely i know that's that's the wonder of this god who who's so prodigal in his giving like it absolutely every moment is the moment that that awakening that turn is possible this is lovely guys thank you for this father king why don't you say a prayer for us and we'll we'll stop it there okay well christ our god i thank you for my brothers i thank you for the word that is pregnant with you um, I thank you uh, that as we've talked, um, uh, you've been born again um, in us, uh, and these these texts uh, come alive. Um, and uh, we we thank you for the privilege of preaching and delivering uh, the word of God to the people of God. And we ask that everybody who and anyone who's listening to this and who has this that task this weekend will feel your presence um, and will declare with confidence in you um, Christ. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.